Our world is broken, as the video says. The statistics are overwhelming. According to the UNHCR, at the end of 2018, 70.8 million individuals were forcibly displaced worldwide as a result of persecution, conflict, violence, ethnic cleansing, and human rights violations. That was an increase of 2.3 million people over the previous year alone. We are now witnessing the highest level of displacements ever recorded in history. This includes 25.9 million refugees in the world, the highest number ever seen. It includes 41.3 million internally displaced people, people who are still in their countries but have no home, no place. It includes 3.5 million asylum seekers, people who have not been yet given that refugee status, but who are seeking asylum. One person becomes displaced every two seconds. That's less time than it took for me to say that sentence. That means every minute, 30 people are displaced in this world. Every minute of every day which results in one in every 108 people globally is either an asylum seeker, internally displaced, or a refugee. Given those statistics, I think it's fair to say that there's an immigration crisis in our world. There's a place to write that in your notes. And while we hear a lot about the immigration crisis on our southern border, that is only one very small piece of a much larger picture. This is a global crisis, and we don't hear much about that on the news. For instance, in the Central African Republic, since 2013, nearly one million men, women, and children have fled their homes in desperation. In South Sudan, during that same time period, brutal conflict has claimed thousands of lives and has driven three million people from their homes who have then become refugees in the neighboring countries. Uganda itself, a poor country, now houses one million South Sudanese refugees. Think about that. And it's all over the globe. In Ukraine and Yemen and Iraq and Central America and Myanmar, the numbers displaced by conflict, by war, by ethnic cleansing are staggering. In Syria alone, there are 13 million people displaced. That's half the population of the country of Syria. More than 5 million have fled Syria seeking safety in Lebanon, Turkey, Jordan, and beyond. Lebanon, the country of Lebanon, now has 1 million Syrian refugees in the nation. I read somewhere that that's something like one in four people in Lebanon is now a Syrian refugee. Think about that. Perhaps most disturbing is that more than 1.4 million Syrian refugees have now taken their chances aboard unseaworthy boats trying to make the journey across the Mediterranean to Italy and to Spain and to Greece, trying to find refuge in Europe. The numbers are daunting. The numbers are overwhelming. What could we even do? It just seems so big when you see these statistics and you hear these numbers. And while I think it's really important to see and to hear and understand these statistics, I think over time, they're so big that we become numb to them. I think in a way, if we're not careful, statistics can actually insulate us 
from the crisis. There's a place to write that down. Statistics can be helpful, but they're so big and they're so overwhelming that sometimes when we see them, we, like the video said, simply feel paralyzed to do anything about the crisis at all. Statistics can illustrate, they can illuminate, but I think it's stories that can actually unsolate us to the crisis. And so this morning, rather than looking at the millions and the tens of millions of people, I want to pause and simply look at a few people, a couple of people, and hear a couple of stories, stories that sometimes are very difficult to look at. We saw an image in the video that played just a moment ago of a child on a beach. I want to look at that child's story. It's a story of a child named Alan Curdy. Alan Curdy, as the world came to know him, was born in 2012 in Kobani, Syria. His birth name was actually Ilan Chenu, but he's become known as Curdy because he was ethnically Kurdish. Curdy's family had constantly had to move from city to city in northern Syria to try to escape war, try to escape Syria. Multiple times they had fled to Turkey, but each time they returned to Syria trying to find some way to have Syria be their home, the only home they'd ever known. But each time they were met with violence. And when their city, Kobani, was eventually destroyed, they were forced to flee permanently to Turkey. Curdy's parents had hoped to take their family to Canada. They had family members in Canada who had applied for asylum for them, for refugee status for them. But due to some technicalities, due to errors on their application, they were denied. And there was no recourse. There's no second chance. There's no redo. They were denied. And so desperate, they tried a second way to obtain entry into Canada through private sponsorship. But again, they were denied. You see, because they were in Turkey and not Syria... Canada required that Turkey declare them refugees, which is essentially impossible to do. And so once again, they were denied. And there was nothing they could do. They were stuck. And so desperate for a way out, Curdie's father paid smugglers almost $6,000 for illegal passage to Greece by sea. On September 2nd, 2015, in the middle of the night, on a secluded beach in Turkey, Curdy and his family boarded a small inflatable boat designed to hold eight people. That night, the boat had 16 people on it. Twice its capacity. And they began the two-and-a-half-mile journey from Turkey to Greece. About five minutes into their journey, however, the overloaded boat capsized. It was discovered later that the life jackets that they'd been given for those who had received them at all were either defective or were fake. At about 5 a.m. that morning, the authorities got a call that a boat had capsized and that bodies were beginning to wash up on the shore. A Turkish photojournalist captured an image of the body of this lifeless toddler laying face down on the beach, still wearing his red shirt and his little shoes and no life jacket. And the toddler in that photo was Curdie. I had planned for us to see that photo this morning again, but it's so raw, so gut-wrenching that we didn't show it. But that image became an icon of the struggle of refugees all over the world. The authors of the book Seeking Refuge say this, 
We shudder to imagine the horror that would inspire a parent to embark upon such a dangerous journey. And in a subconscious pivot from compassion to fear, wonder if such terror could ever reach our shores, our children as well. That image stirs so much emotion, compassion and sadness and anger. And yes, fear. We don't want to have to face Images like that, stories like that. It's hard. It's painful to see. We want to avoid pain. We want to remain insulated from the realities of this world that could be so ruthless, so desperate, so painful that a father would hire illegal human smugglers, human traffickers, and put his family on a boat in the middle of the night to traverse dangerous seas just to try to escape. On September 3rd, 2015, the bodies of Kurdi, along with his brother Ghalib and his mother Rihanna, were taken back to Kobani, Syria, for burial. These aren't statistics. These are real people with real names and real faces and real hopes and real fears. And meanwhile, here in America, we've been caught up in a debate about immigration that's lasted for decades, stretching way back further back than the current administration. All you have to do is turn on any news channel to hear the simplistic and sometimes hate-filled rhetoric that both sides use to characterize the other side of the debate and sometimes use to characterize immigrants and refugees, to turn them from real flesh-and-blood people into meaningless statistics and faceless enemies. So what do we do as Americans? as followers of Christ. It's complicated. Many pointed to the responses of countries in Europe who opened their doors and said, we should do that. And many others looked at the very complicated situations that that then caused in Europe and said, we must not do that. We must learn from their mistakes. And the divide in our nation has only grown bigger. The language and the rhetoric on our news channels and our political platforms have only become more rancorous in the time since 2015. No one seems to be providing any solutions. And so as Christians, as followers of Christ, as a church, we want to push pause on the rhetoric, push pause on the politics of this, push pause on the screaming matches. Instead, ask, what would God have us to do in the face of the greatest humanitarian crisis in the history of the world. Unfortunately, scripture has a lot to say about how the people of God should respond to immigrants and refugees. The Bible is actually full of stories of immigrants. In fact, most of the heroes of the stories of the Bible are actually immigrants themselves. If you look at their stories, each were immigrants driven at different times by different forces to different lands for food, or for employment, or for safety. Immigrants like Abraham, who multiple times in his story was forced to travel to other countries to find food or to escape persecution and death. Multiple immigrants like Jacob, like Joseph, who was sold into slavery into Egypt. The nation of Israel was born as an immigrant people of God in Egypt. And on and on and on throughout the Bible, we see these stories of these people, and most of them are immigrants. Last summer, we were looking at the book of Genesis, the very beginning 
of the Bible. And Caitlin did a great job of telling us the story of Hagar. Hagar was a young immigrant slave girl whose owner forced her to bear his child. But then once she was pregnant, her owner and his wife forced her out, abandoned her and left her in the wilderness alone with nothing to die. But while she was in that wilderness with nothing and no one, she encounters God. And God meets her in that place and he gives her a picture of who he is. He calls her by name and he lets, you know, let, lets her know that he understands her story, her situation. And he makes a promise to sustain her, to bless her, to make a great nation from the child in her womb. Genesis 16, God says, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. The Lord has heard your cry of distress. Note that God tells her to name her son. God hears. God wants her to know and to understand that he hears her. He hears the cries of those in need, even the most vulnerable. Perhaps especially the most vulnerable. And then something surprising happens. There are lots of places in scripture where God uses different names to describe himself. But there's only one place in all of scripture where a human being gives a name to God. And it's here in this story. God is named by a young immigrant slave girl who's now a refugee in the wilderness. Thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. There's a place to write this in your notes. God is a God who sees. Who sees the young slave girl, an immigrant who's been displaced and abused. Who sees the foreigner, the immigrant. Who sees the refugee. Who sees each of the 70 million people displaced in this world. Not as a statistic. But as individuals. Whose story God knows. But even more than that, God commands us to be the people of God who see, who see those same foreigners, who see the immigrants, who see the refugees. It's a place to write this in your notes. God commands us to see the foreigner. That message is reiterated throughout the entire Bible. The book of Deuteronomy is in large part the story of the migration of God's people, the immigrant nation of Israel, whom God had rescued from slavery and who were now migrants searching for this new land, this promised land. And Deuteronomy is God speaking to Israel right before they entered that new land. And God is saying, before you enter this land, there are a few things you need to understand about me. A few things that you need to know about how you should interact with each other. Deuteronomy 10 he says this, he, meaning God, ensures that orphans and widows receive justice. He shows love to the foreigners living among you and gives them food and clothing. So you too must show love to foreigners. For you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. God loves the foreigners. And therefore so must we if we are the people of God. In Leviticus 19, which we looked at last week, God gives instructions that when they're harvesting food, they should leave along the edges of their fields some food that is left so that the poor and the immigrants that are among them could come and take that food at no cost. 
And then just a few verses later, he says this. Do not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in your land. Treat them like native-born Israelites. And love them as you love yourself. Remember that you were once foreigners living in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This is a, a big deal to God. So big, in fact, as Chris pointed out last week, that next to love the Lord your God, this is the most oft-commanded scripture in the Old Testament. This idea of loving the immigrant, of caring for the foreigner, the refugee. It's so big, in fact, that in Malachi 3, God says that he will be a swift witness against anyone who oppresses an immigrant. I think as we look at this crisis in our world and we throw our hands up in the air, we say, God, it's too big. What can we do? Part of what God says is don't turn away. Don't try to insulate yourself from this pain. Don't cover your eyes. Don't choose your own comfort over seeing their pain. Choose to see. See them the way that I see them. As beloved children made in my image. God was clear to Israel that as God's people, they must see and care for and protect the immigrant, the foreigner, the stranger, the sojourner. And that's just as true for us today if we are to be the people of God. But it goes even further than that. God commands us not only to see the immigrant and the refugee, God commands us to see ourselves as immigrants and foreigners. God knew as he was preparing his people to go into this new land that they would quickly forget their own immigration story as they entered this new land and started settling in and started having kids and started laying down their own roots. Matthew Sorens and Jenny Yang in their book, Welcoming the Stranger, say it this way. The problem God knew was that we human beings are apt to forget our own history. Often, when we move out of difficult places, we tend to forget the grace that brought us, brought us through. And so God, again here in Deuteronomy, gave Israel this liturgy for their worship to remind themselves of their own immigrant journey. Deuteronomy 26, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you as a special possession, and you've conquered it and settled there, you must then say, in the presence of the Lord your God, my ancestor Jacob was a wandering Aramean who went to live as a foreigner in Egypt. His family arrived few in number, but in Egypt they became a large and mighty nation. Remember, God says. Remember, remind yourself. Teach your children their immigrant story. Teach it to the second and the third and the fourth generation who will forget that they too were once immigrants. You were once the huddled masses longing to be free. That's central to your story. Then, once you've done that, then you can celebrate all the blessings that I've given you. Verse 11, afterwards, you may go and celebrate because of all the good things the Lord your God has given you into your household. Remember to include the Levites and the foreigners living among you in the celebration. He's saying, before you go and celebrate all the things that I've done for you as a nation... Remember your own story as immigrants. And then when you celebrate, remember to include and care for the immigrants. In Leviticus, God takes it even a step further. He gives Israel detailed instructions on how they were to care for this new land that he'd given them. 
and how to ensure that even the immigrants and the foreigners among them were cared for. But then he goes on to say this in Leviticus 25. The land must never be sold on a permanent basis. For the land belongs to me. You are only foreigners and tenant farmers working for me. Each time it's intensified, right? He's saying, remember, you were foreigners. And you're still foreigners. This land that I've given you is yours to use. It's yours to steward. But I am the owner. You are foreigners. You are tenant farmers working for me in this land. If we were to take that scripture seriously, how would it change our view of borders, of citizenship, of who owns the land? Even in the New Testament, this theme of caring for the immigrant is everywhere. The people of God are committed to see themselves first and foremost as citizens of the kingdom of God, citizens of heaven, right? To see themselves as foreigners in this world and in this country. First Peter 2 says this, dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. That is the story of the earliest Christians. And it's our story too. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he repeatedly demonstrated God's care for the foreigner, for the immigrant. When Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is, he responded to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Quoting Leviticus 19. When the expert in the law heard this, he said, yeah, but who's my neighbor trying to trick Jesus? And Jesus goes on to tell a story. A story that's come to be known as the story of the Good Samaritan. A Jewish man is traveling along a road and he's beset by bandits. And they beat him and they rob him and they leave him on the side of the road for dead. Two religious leaders come. And each time they come, so absorbed in their own agendas that they walk by. They don't even see this man. Their fellow countrymen on the side of the road. But then a third man comes. He sees the man laying there and not only sees him, but he stops and he cares for the man. He pays out of his own pocket to give this man shelter and care and refuge. Who is the third man? The Samaritan, right? A dirty, hated Samaritan. A foreigner who would have known that he was probably hated by the very man that he was helping. But he stops. He puts aside his own agenda, his own baggage, his own biases, his own hurt. And he chooses to help. And who is the hero of this story for Jesus? The Samaritan, right? And more importantly, who's the neighbor in the story? The neighbor that we are to love as we love ourselves it's not the countryman who's hurt by the side of the road. It's the Samaritan. Jesus makes the foreigner the hero of the story. And he says the greatest commandment in the Bible is to love that guy. And to be like that guy. In Matthew 25, Jesus is teaching about what it looked like when he returns to judge the world. And it's striking, perhaps even alarming, that the standard that God will use to judge who's in, who's out, who's his people and who aren't, isn't our beliefs, 
it isn't our doctrinal accuracy on issues like the atonement or eschatology, as important as those are. Jesus says that it's how we care for the needy, the hungry, the thirsty, the immigrant, that will determine who is his and who isn't. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you're doing it to me. Immigration is incredibly complicated. Immigration policy. Immigration policy and process is really complicated. Scripture isn't. Scripture is really clear on this. As the people of God, we must see the immigrant. We are to see ourselves as immigrant. And when we do, says Jesus, we see Jesus. We serve Jesus. And if we don't, then perhaps we aren't the people of God. So how do we do that? Brass tacks. Like how do we actually begin to do that in this world that is so huge, in this crisis that is so enormous? We're going to spend the rest of the series looking at answering that question. How do we practically begin to engage in this? But before we end today, I want to spend just a few minutes to give us a couple of things that we can begin to do to unsolate ourselves, to expose our hearts and our minds to this crisis. I think one of the ways that we begin to see immigrants, and there's a place to write this in your notes, is to choose to see. To make a conscious choice, like the Good Samaritan, to not keep walking so consumed in our agendas and our lives, but to instead turn and investigate what's really going on. We've got resources and articles and handouts and all kinds of information in the lobby at a table where we can see so much more information about the crisis that's in our world. Choose to see. We also have a webpage, emmanuel.church slash complicado, where we have links to a couple of short films that you can watch that just do a great job of illuminating the nature of this crisis. Choose to see. On that same page, we also have links to a couple of really great books that we're recommending in this series. Those books are also listed in your notes page. They're full of information and statistics that you can really understand the crisis. But they're also full of great stories that help to unsolate us to that crisis. Dan reminded me that in order to begin to engage in finding a solution to this, we must first do the work of exposing our hearts and informing our minds to the nature of the crisis. We all know people who tried to rush in and fix something before they really understood the problem. He also pointed out that one of the critiques that some may have of this series or even of this talk is that, you know, well, there's dangerous people in this world. There are terrorists who want to come into this country and do harm to us. We have to acknowledge that there, there's truth in that statement. But I think we also have to say, know your sources. Know the real information. There's a lot of fake news out there about immigrants and refugees in this world. And part of what we try to do is compile a bunch of resources that can give you the real information, that can give you the truth, the statistics, the information about who is it that's trying to get into this country. How has that worked over time? Who are the immigrants and why do they want to come? What is the truth? Do the work. Choose to see. Choose to turn off the talk radio and the, pol the political pundits and hear from the people who are actually on the front lines ministering to and loving and working with these refugees and these immigrants. 
choose to see. Our small churches are going through a curriculum that was provided by World Relief, and it's excellent, helping us to not only better understand the nature of the crisis, but to better understand ways in which we can engage in this. We met last night as a small church, and one of the things they had us do was this exercise. They called it a game. It wasn't fun. Each of us received a card, and on that card was a scenario, a very typical scenario of of an immigrant in this world, of a refugee in this world. And then each of us were given a map that we had to use to try to navigate what was actually a very simplified version of the immigration system in this country, immigration law in this country. And it was shocking how few of us ever saw a possibility, a chance at refuge, a chance at asylum. It was very illuminating. If you'd like to join a small church and join that conversation, there's this information in your worship folder. Let me know, and I will be happy to to connect you with that. I'd be happy also to simply connect you with that game that you can do as a family or even as an individual. It's very illuminating. As I mentioned, that Saturday seminar that's coming up on November 9th, come, choose to hear from refugees, from experts as well, from folks who are working right on the front lines, ministering to these people. Choose to see. Secondly, I think in order for us to see immigrants and see ourselves as immigrants, we need to know our own immigrant story. As God's people were entering this new land, he knew that they would quickly forget their own immigration story. Do you know yours? Do we see ourselves as immigrants whose ancestors came to this land, many of us, not that long ago and experienced something they couldn't have experienced anywhere else in this world? My own ancestors, my own family members came from Sweden in 1860. In 1860, Sweden was ravished by famine. There wasn't food. There wasn't jobs. And the future looked very bleak. And so something like one-third of the population of Sweden, one-third, left in a wave and came to America, to the land of opportunity. And as I've come to understand my own immigration story, I've realized that it isn't all that different than the stories of many immigrants today. We were the countless poor with nothing to bring but our poverty and our hope. Poor, largely uneducated farmers who came here hoping to find opportunity. But there's a big difference between those immigrants and the immigrants of today. My immigrant relatives didn't come here illegally. Because there was no way to come illegally in 1860. This is 30 years before Ellis Island was ever built. The process then was get on a boat and come. Check my facts on that. But then also check your own immigrant story. I'm guessing my story isn't all that different from many of the stories in this room. When did your family come? Why did they come? What were the factors that drove your relatives to leave their land, to leave their home, to leave their families and their history and come to this land of opportunity? I think we have to do this work in order to understand our own journey and our own history to be the people of God as he's commanded, but also to understand the situation that so many face in this world today. That's one of the ways that we as the people of God begin to see immigrants and foreigners to see and to hear that our own stories aren't that different than the immigrants of today. Their situations are just as urgent, just as desperate, just as needy as those of my ancestors. But their pathways 
have far greater hurdles than my ancestors faced. Especially for refugees who have faced terrors that I and my Swedish ancestors never faced. That's just true. Number three. See the immigrants in your life. Chris mentioned last week, and we mentioned in the past, as we were preparing for this message series, we met with a number of pastors, all of whom, and ministers, all of whom are first-generation immigrants themselves, doing immigration or doing uh, ministry now in this context in the Twin Cities. And we asked them this question, how do we begin to do this? And the answers they gave us were surprisingly simple, almost simplistic. They said things like, when you see an immigrant, When you see someone that you might suspect as a foreigner, smile. (laughs) In in, In an environment and in a climate right now that is so polarized and so us and them, a smile can make an enormous difference to that dynamic. They said you wouldn't believe the looks that they get at the grocery store, at Target, the suspicion that they see in people's eyes. Smile. They said it's the simple acts of kindness. It's remembering that no one here wants to be an illegal. No one wants to be known as an illegal. That is a label that is not helpful. It's not descriptive. Labels and statistics insulate us from the crisis. But when we get to know these people and know their stories, they become people with real flesh and bone, real faces. Real stories. And we become unsolated to their story. I want to end today with one more immigrant story. The story of Oscar. Many of us may remember another picture that got worldwide attention not that long ago and not that far away. The story of Oscar Alberto Martinez Ramirez and his wife Tanya and their 23-month-old daughter Angie who tried to escape the violence and the poverty of El Salvador. In recent years, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, together known as the Central American Triangle, have experienced a dramatic escalation in violence, by organized crime, by gangs. The current homicide rates are among the highest ever recorded in the region, and El Salvador has become known as the murder capital of the world. The number of people fleeing for their lives from Central America has grown 10 times in just the past five years. And 90% of those seeking asylum in Mexico are from these Central American countries. And so Oscar and his young family tried to escape that life. They secured a humanitarian visa in Mexico and they made the thousand mile trek from their home in El Salvador to the U.S. border in Mexico to begin the process of waiting in line to apply for asylum in the U.S. But after spending two months in a migrant camp, waiting to even apply for asylum, Oscar decided that they couldn't wait any longer, that they should try to cross, to cross the river, to cross the border into America. And so Oscar wrapped his daughter inside his shirt, and she wrapped her little arm around his neck, and they stepped into the water, trying to ford the Rio Grande River and cross. But the current was too strong. And they succumbed and both died while Tanya watched helplessly from the shore. The next morning, their bodies were found, the little girl still wrapped in her father's shirt, her little arm still wrapped 
around his neck as they lay lifeless on the shores. And a journalist snapped a photo, and that photo again went wild across the internet, rocketed across social media. But what that photo didn't capture was that they were just two of several bodies that were found that morning along the river. But again, that photo was captured and reported in the news, and the image of this father and this daughter face down on the shore rocketed across social media and once again became a symbol of the large-scale humanitarian crisis, the largest in the history of the world that is at our border. And we were once again filled with emotions, compassion, anger, and fear. And many of us, why would he do that? Why didn't Oscar come in the legal way? Why didn't Oscar just get in line? It's a fair question. But I would invite you to do the work. Fact check us on this. For Oscar, for his family who were poor, who had no special skills to bring, no money to invest, with no family connections here to apply for their visa, there was no legal way. There was essentially no line that Oscar could get into that would have gotten him into this country that would have allowed him to find asylum for decades. For Oscar, and for so many like him, there is no line. Will we choose to see Oscar and his family? Will we choose to look at those images that are so raw and so gut-wrenching? Are we willing to do the work to really understand Oscar's story and the story of so many like him before we decide what our politics should be, what our policies should be, what our response should be? Are we willing to see ourselves in these stories? To see that we are still foreigners in this land, tenant farmers on a land that was never really ours, but simply ours to steward. Are we willing to see ourselves in his story? To see that while Oscar's story has so much in common with the stories of so many in this room, the challenges and the hurdles and the obstacles that he has faced are so much greater. It is when we are willing to not remain insulated, but to choose to see, to see ourselves in the stories, like the stories of Curdie, the story of Oscar, that we see Jesus, that we serve Jesus, that we become the people of God that he has designed us to be and destined us to be. It is then that we experience the God who sees and who commands us to see. Let me pray for us. God, we acknowledge that our world is broken. And God, we ask for you to move in this world, to bring healing, to bring justice, to remove the powers that are corrupt and evil in this world that are causing so much pain. We ask you to do that. And we ask you to change our hearts. We ask you to remind us of our own immigrant journey. We ask you to bring to us the grace that is necessary for us to respond as you would have us respond. Give us the courage and the conviction to do that. 
Holy Spirit, we invite you to, to convict, but also to empower and encourage us as we are your people in this world. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.